Okay, this morning we're going to look at a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. I know it's not the easiest book to find, but if you're looking in your Bible, you'll find it towards the end of the New Testament, between Hebrews and Revelation. So it goes Hebrews, then James, and then 1 Peter. And we're returning again this morning to the subject of suffering. And the question of why, why does God allow suffering? How can he be a good God, given all the suffering that we see and experience? And the truth is that these are hard questions, but that doesn't excuse us from thinking about them because it's also true that we're all going to face times of trials. And if we don't have any understanding of what the Bible teaches us, then we can easily come unstuck. And some will start to question God and to doubt. Some will turn their backs on God altogether. But it doesn't have to be this way. Because if we can understand something of what the Bible teaches us, it will help us to stand firm when those hard times come. So we're just going to look at a bit of that teaching this morning. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." One of the main themes of Peter's letter is that of suffering. His expectation, along with most of the New Testament writers, was that we would suffer. And right at the beginning of the letter here, we see the subject raised. And he's writing to try and strengthen and encourage those who were suffering. And that's what I want to try and do today. What are some of the truths that the Bible teaches us that can help us to stand firm when troubles come? And the first truth I want you to notice is that there is a purpose to our suffering. In verses 6 and 7, Peter says, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory. There is a purpose to the trials, and that's what that purpose specifically is we'll look at later. But for the moment, I just want to think about the general idea of that, that, that suffering can have a purpose, because I think that many of us can struggle with that thought. So I'm going to start with a couple of short stories. They're both true. Um, there's things that I read, wrote down a long time ago, and I can't remember where they came from. So if you've come across these stories, please do let me know, because I'd love to have the reference. The first is about a lady called Marjorie. Now, Marjorie lived somewhere in the north of England, and she was a normal, healthy young lady. She did all the sorts of things that young people do, going out with friends, enjoying herself, and generally enjoying all that life had to offer. She had nothing to worry about. Things were good. But then overnight, almost uh, suddenly everything changed. Marjorie became ill, and this illness left her 
in bed and in great pain. George, by contrast, an American boy, never felt any pain at all. In most ways, he was a normal and healthy, intelligent young boy, except for this one thing. He had been born with a rare condition that meant that he never felt any pain at all. By the time he was 10, his body was covered in scars. His feet were crippled because he had broken his foot and walked on it, not knowing that it was broken. His fingers were so badly cut that he couldn't use his hands. Now, I'm sure there are times when we wish that we didn't feel pain, when we cut ourselves and we're chopping vegetables or pick up a hot pan when we've got a toothache or whatever it is, we wish that we didn't feel pain. But remember what happened to that poor boy. His body was covered in scars. His feet and hand were crippled. The prayer of parents of children such as this is that they would gain the ability to feel pain. You see, pain can be useful. It can be a good thing. It can be a warning signal and something telling us that something is wrong. C.S. Fam- Lewis famously said that God, uh, pain is God's megaphone. Sometimes he uses it to communicate to us when we can't hear any other way. He can use it to get us to change our lives. He even uses it sometimes to bring people to himself. And that is what happened with Marjorie. While she was lying there in great pain, someone came to visit her and told her the good news about Jesus. And previously, when she was fit and healthy, she had no time for that sort of thing. Her life was good enough, she felt. But now, she was prepared to listen. And she gave her life to Christ. Twenty years or so later, she testified that she regularly thanked God for her illness. She said those were the best days of her life. And even if someone could go back and uh, change things so she never got ill, she wouldn't accept that offer. Because through that illness... She came into a relationship with God and she recognized that was so precious that she wouldn't exchange it for anything. So you get the the general idea of what I'm trying to say here. You see that sometimes suffering can serve a good purpose. Now I admit that these, these examples that I've given you are quite extreme. And in both of these cases the purpose of the suffering is very obvious. The problem for us is that very often that purpose is not clear at all. Some of you will remember we looked at Job um, well, last year sometime. And in his case, the purpose was completely hidden from him. As far as we know, Job died never knowing what the purpose was of his suffering. And often I think that for us, that's one of the hardest things to bear. It just seems so pointless and futile what we're going through. So one of the reasons I want to look at this passage today is to remind you the Bible teaches us there is a purpose in our suffering, even if we can't see what it is. And if we can grasp that, I think that will help us. But the Bible goes further than that. You see, it doesn't just say that um, there's a purpose in our suffering and therefore we can somehow just survive them. Here in 1 Peter, we're told to rejoice despite the fact that we have been grieved by various trials. And James in the previous book is even more radical. He tells us we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. You'll find that in James 1. And frankly, that does seem rather perverse. But I think sometimes when we meditate on those, those uh, apparently discordant notes in scriptures, those things that really don't seem to make sense, it's sometimes when we look at those things that we can see that there's something, a, a wonderful truth there. And I think that is the case here. I think we can find something wonderful both in the context which Peter is describing as well as in the purpose that he goes on to describe. I watched a film recently, it was um, a a good film, and it's called Now You See Me. 
Uh, it was on television this last week, so some of you may also have seen it. Basically, it was about a group of magicians, and they executed a series of, of robberies. And it was very cleverly done. But one of the main themes of the film was trying to understand how they did it and, and why they did it. And one thing we were told over and over through the film was, don't look too closely at the details, but look at the bigger picture. And the reason for that is that all the time the magician is drawing our attention into something here, he's doing something else out here, and it's this thing out here that's the important thing. But we miss it every time because we're looking in this direction. And of course, despite all the warnings, I did look at the details and I didn't see the bigger picture at all, and I had to wait till the end of the film when they spelt it all out for me. And I think that's often the case with our trials. We, we get so drawn in by them that they fill our vision. And so all we can see is that thing which is right in front of us, the particular circumstance that we're dealing with at the moment, the particular trial that we're enduring. And so we forget all about the bigger picture. We don't see what it is that's going on out here. But unlike the film, the problem isn't that we don't know what that bigger picture is. We don't have to wait until the end, until it's all spelt out for us. We've already been told. The problem for us is that we forget, and we need to be reminded. So if we go back to the passage, and let's remind ourselves. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. I want you to notice who this letter is addressed to. It's addressed to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And if you're here today and you've recognized your helplessness and need and you've asked Jesus to have mercy on you, to forgive you, to make you whole, then this letter is addressed to you. You are one of the elect. And I know that sounds a bit of a strange theological type of word. It's not one that we use very often. But actually, you all know exactly what it means. We elect our members of parliament, don't we? You might elect to have a certain surgical procedure. It means choose. Those who are elect are those who are chosen. And in this case, chosen by God. So in Ephesians 1.3, we, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, the spiritual, in, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We were chosen before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us. And similarly, Peter tells us that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We have been a chosen for adoption as sons. So when Peter addresses his letter to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he's reminding them of the absolutely secure and privileged position that they occupy. Even when we were dead in our sins, enemies of God, he knew us and he loved us and he chose us to be his sons. He adopted us into his family. And if God has chosen us, if the God who is love has loved us, then what can ever separate us from that love? 
Um, You'll all be very familiar with the passage in Romans 8, but I'm going to read it anyway. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the first part of the bigger picture that I want us to keep in mind. This is the rock under our feet, that whatever we face, whatever trials come our way, we are and we always will be chosen by God and loved by him. We can never become unadopted. We can never be separated from the love of God. Peter goes on to write that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. I'm not going to dwell on the detail of that, but I do want you to just notice the Trinitarian reference here. The whole Godhead is involved in making you whole again. The Father chooses The Son makes the way possible through his shed blood, and the Spirit works in us to regenerate and purify us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together to prepare us, to make us, restore us, to make us pure and holy, to prepare us for eternity with themselves. We are the objects of that divine cooperation and attention. Let's just pause for a moment, just think of that. Never think of God as being some solitary impersonal being father son and holy spirit are there together in loving community and that love has spilt out from there and it is directed to us and we are the the objects and recipients of that love which is pouring out from our god that's amazing verse three is an appropriate response blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God didn't have to do anything for us. He could have left us to our fate. But Peter tells us that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has made us new and made us sons and heirs. Because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And so here we have the bigger picture. And how much bigger could it possibly be? Even before the world was made, God had already chosen us to be included in his family. And when the earth comes to an end, we have an imperishable inheritance waiting for us. We're part of this great story, but so often especially when we face various kinds of trials. We have our heads bowed down and all we can see and think about are those things that are just immediately around us. So we feel lost and discouraged, abandoned and hopeless. We forget what Peter is describing here, the living hope that we have. And hope 
as it's used in the Bible, doesn't mean wishful thinking. An outcome that might or might not come out in our favour if we're lucky. It's rather talking about something which is sure and settled. Something that is so certain that we can live with a confident expectation of its fulfilment. It's a living hope, Peter says. I'm not exactly sure what this means, but it sounds to me like this is describing a hope which is vibrant and dynamic and life-giving. This is a hope that brings vitality and strength, like water on a wilting plant that causes it to rise up again and be strong. It's a hope that helps us to carry on, to face another day. It's a hope that endures, a hope that sustains, a hope that empowers. This is the hope that we have. And what is this hope of? Well, this hope is of an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about heaven, what it's going to be like. But what it does tell us is clearly intended to tell us that this is going to be good. It's going to be great beyond our wildest dreams. See, here Peter is writing to people whose current lives were very uncertain. Their possessions and even their lives were under threat. Thank you, that's wonderful. So Peter was reminding them that in contrast to the transient nature of all the things that were around them, their heavenly inheritance was absolutely solid. You know, people with, with, uh, with wealth often buy gold when the investment outlook is bleak. So when there's political turmoil, wars, threats to inflation, that sort of thing, they buy gold because gold is perceived to be a good holder of value. If all else fails, people still place a value on gold. But as Peter reminds us later in the passage, even gold will perish, but the inheritance we have will never perish or fade. And this isn't an inheritance we can lose. We won't get to the end and find that we've been disinherited because we're being guarded by God's power, we're told. And as we've reminded ourselves already, if God is for us, then who can stand against us? There is nothing and no one that can separate us from God's love. We are secure in him. And it's because of all of this, because of this story that we're part of, because of of the future that we have and the certainty we have of inheriting it, because of all of this, we rejoice, even though for a little while we may be grieved by various trials. So Peter has has painted some broad um, sort of brush strokes here, but then he drops down to a fine point of detail. So against that great backdrop, He talks then about the trials which we might have to endure for a little while. Elsewhere, Paul talks of light and momentary afflictions. And in the midst of the trials we face, this can be quite hard to swallow. For me, a light and momentary affliction is the prick of a needle when I'm having a vaccination and I have to turn my head away. What we have to understand, we have to understand what Peter is trying to do here. He's trying to get us have a sense of perspective. And the reality is that people do endure hardship, even extreme pain, knowing that it will come to an end and the result will be worthwhile. Now, I know that many of you here are mothers. And the amazing thing to me is that many of you have more than one child. <laughs> I was present for the birth of all of my children. And I know for sure that had the role of childbearing been mine my two beautiful daughters sitting over there would never have been born. (laughs) If I'd survived giving birth to Peter, that would have been it, finished. 
but somehow mothers seem to be able to see the travails of childbirth as just part of a bigger picture a picture which ends in the joy and blessing of a new life and often amazingly they're willing to go through that more than once and surely this is what Peter is trying to say here he's not denying the reality of the trials he's saying we'll be grieved by those trials later on he'll talk about the endurance and perseverance needed to go through those trials he's not saying that it's going to be easy or the pain will be taken away But what he is saying is that in the context of this bigger story, we can see they will come to an end. And in this bigger context, they really will only exist for a short while. I still say that's very hard for us to accept, for many of us in any case, especially when we're in the middle of them. But if we're going to take the Bible seriously, then part of the way that we are to respond to suffering is to remind ourselves of the temporary nature of these trials in the context of the glorious future, which is guaranteed to us. So we've seen that one truth that can help sustain us through the hard times is that we are loved and chosen by God and that there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Our security is absolute. Then we've been reminded that our sufferings are temporary, though it might not seem like it at the time. Then as we move on, we see another truth that can help us, and that is that there is a purpose in our suffering. Somehow God uses suffering to shape and change us. And again, I think this can be hard for us to accept, especially when we're in the middle of the trials. But that's what it says here. The trials are allowed by God so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to tell you those stories at the beginning because I think we can resist the idea there can possibly be any purpose to suffering. And I wanted you to see and acknowledge that at least sometimes it can be the case. And very often, of course, as I already said, that the purpose is much less evident than the examples that I gave you. And it's at these times, very often, that can prompt the sorts of questions that I mentioned at the beginning. The question of why. The question of whether God can be good given that he allows these things to happen. So before we look at what this passage has to say about purpose, I want to think again about how we might deal with the fact that there can be any purpose at all. And our starting point here has to be to remind ourselves of God's goodness. Now, there are a lot of biblical doctrines that are, that are debated amongst Christians, but the fact that God is good is not one of them. All Christians will affirm that the perfect goodness is intrinsic to God's character. It's who he is, not in some dry definitional sense, but love and goodness pour out of God as if he simply couldn't contain it all within himself. God's loving kindness and goodness have to be one of the key starting points for our understanding of him. And if that's the case, we have to say that he cannot possibly be capricious or arbitrary in his actions or the things that he allows. In the light of God's goodness, it's inconceivable that he would allow any suffering or evil to persist without having a good reason for it. But this doesn't mean necessarily that we are going to understand what that reason is. And the fact that we don't understand what it is shouldn't stop us from trusting God. Andrew recently pointed me to a picture that C.S. Lewis used in a slightly different context, but it has some applicability here, and many of you will be able to relate to it. So you know when you're walking a dog and the dog is on a lead and you get to a narrow gate, the chances are the dog will try and go the wrong way around the gatepost. So you have to pull him back again so it goes through the same way as you. Now the dog doesn't know why you're doing that. From his perspective, He can't see any problem. The the path is right there ahead of him. and He can't understand why you're pulling back on the lead. So it pulls one way while you pull the other. And that's presumably uncomfortable for the dog. 
But eventually your greater strength and determination get it to come the right, the right way through the gate. So the dog walks on, perhaps with a bit of a sore neck, not understanding what all that fuss was about, because it lacks both the capacity and the perspective to understand. And the uncomfortable truth is that compared to God, we too lack both perspective and capacity. And so the bottom line, as I said before, is that in those cases, we just have to trust God. But God does try and help us, and he does try and explain in as far as we're able to understand. And he does give us some pointers as to the sorts of reasons that he allows us to go through times of trial. And one of them is given us here in this passage. So we read, You are grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James says something very similar. He writes that we should consider it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and this in turn brings perfection and completion and ultimately the crown of life. So one thing I want you to notice is that both of these writers are taking a very long-term view in terms of purpose. See, many of us will try and work out um, what's going on, what the purpose might be. We, we try and make sense of things, and we remember verses like that in Romans 8 where Paul tells us, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a very special verse, isn't it? But then we try and work out what, what that purpose is. And the trouble is we almost invariably want to see that good working out now. We want that purpose to be something we can grasp and appreciate now, something tangible that will help us to go through and deal with the things that we're going through. And sometimes I'm sure there there are those sorts of goods and those sorts of outcomes. So, So, for example, for Stephanie... Maybe her suffering now will help her to empathize with people in the future that are suffering in a similar way. Well, yes, maybe. But then you start to ask, well, but was it worth that much of a cost to get that much of an outcome? And you see, you get the idea. We can often find that it doesn't add up to us, and, and we sometimes can't find any good at all. And I'm sure many of you all have suffered things and seen things that you just think, well, there's just no justification for that kind of suffering. So whilst it's possible that you may at some point in time be able to give testimony like Marjorie did that we referred to earlier and say, well, look, God brought this good out of this suffering, it isn't always going to be that that kind of straightforward. We aren't always going to be able to find that kind of equivalence. And I think there's a danger if we're always looking for that, that we will come unstuck. Because sometimes it is something much longer term that we're looking at. So Peter and James both see the purpose of suffering as part of something much bigger. They see it as part of our sanctification. Now, that's another long long theological word, and we don't use it much. But again, it's not so hard to understand. We can basically understand it as meaning purified. So Peter and James are both saying that through our trials and our sufferings, God purifies us. Now, if you'll allow me, I just want to make a short digression here. Because having brought up the word sanctification, I want to just distinguish it from the word salvation, just so we're clear on what each of those mean. When we're saved, that's when we cried out to God and asked for his mercy. We asked God for his forgiveness and asked us to be, asked to be made new. At that point, a transaction was made. At that point, God said that the blood of his sacrificed son was sufficient to blot out all of your sins. 
At that point, he declared you righteous. He said that from that point, you are clean in his sight. From that point, you are free from condemnation. Sin no longer has mastery over you. From that point, you have a new master. You were adopted into God's family. You became a son and an heir. And that is done and settled. Nothing can be added to to that or taken away. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect. And we all know that too well, don't we? We all make mistakes. We all mess up. But there's no contradiction here. Just as the misbehavior of one of our children doesn't jeopardize their place in our family, so our imperfections don't jeopardize our place in God's family. But similarly, just as a good parent will seek to uh, develop good character and maturity in their child, so God seeks to develop us, to purify us, to bring us to maturity. And that is the process to which we give the word sanctification. So we're told here that we're being changed. God is using the suffering. He's using the trials that we face to make us complete, to make us mature, to make us pure and holy, lacking in nothing, making us so that we will be a people that will result in praise and glory and honor being given to God to make us fit and ready for heaven where we will receive our reward, where we will receive that crown of glory and where we may hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Peter speaks of gold being refined in fire. Now, gold, of course, is a very precious metal, but typically when it leaves the mine, it is still in an impure state. Later, it's purified by heating it to a high temperature until it melts and the imperfections rise to the surface and they're scraped off and the process is repeated until gradually the gold becomes more and more pure and more and more valuable. Well, that's the image that is being used of us. That when we become Christians, we're not perfect, but God leaves us, loves us too much to leave us in that state. He doesn't want us to leave us as impure gold. He wants us to be beautiful and precious and he makes it his business to change us. And that's not an easy or comfortable process. The writer to the Hebrews told us that it would often be painful. If gold had feelings, it surely wouldn't enjoy being heated and melted in the furnace. But the end result for gold is that it's made pure and precious. And the same is true for us. We'll be made pure and precious. We'll be made perfect and complete so that we will bring praise and glory and honor to Jesus when he comes again. I know that can sound like nice words, but perhaps it leaves us a bit cold. But I want you to try and grasp. This is actually a glorious destiny. I don't know if ever you've seen or heard something that is so beautiful that it made you catch your breath or or go all tingly or whatever it is that you do. And you sort of wish that somehow you could be part of whatever that thing is. I don't know if anyone, does anyone relate to that? Good. Well, one day, when we look at all the saints that are standing before God, we're going to get that kind of feeling. A feeling of awe and wonder at the beauty we will see. And on that day, we will be part of it. And all that wonder and thrill and joy and gratitude and amazement, it will all rise as praise to the glory of God. And that's why. We can continue to rejoice, even if now for a little while we have been grieved by various trials. We are being prepared to be part of something that will take our breath away. Something so glorious that it's beyond our capacity even to imagine. (laughs) 
And much as I'd like to leave us on that note, I'm conscious that there may have been questions raised as I've been speaking. And I think it would be helpful for me to just re- anticipate just a few of those, and I'll do that very briefly. Firstly, is Peter here trying to give an, exhausting, uh, an exhaustive coverage of the subject of, of suffering? Well, clearly not. It's a, it's a couple of lines at the beginning of a book, and one book amongst many books. The Bible does say other things, and, and he's not trying to tell us everything here. But what he is telling us is true, and it is helpful. Then, if God uses trials and sufferings for our good, does that make trials and sufferings good? And the answer is no. Evil and suffering is a feature of this fallen world, a consequence of Adam's rebellion against God. It's the outward manifestation of the curse of sin which Christ died to break. All evil and suffering ultimately has its root in Satan's desire to destroy and spoil all that God has made good. And one day God will call time on it. All sin, all death, all suffering and pain will be put away. Then if God uses trials and sufferings for our good, should we pray to be delivered for them? And here the answer is, I believe, yes. You see, when Christ came and inaugurated his kingdom, that is the sphere of his rule and reign, he called us to advance it. He called us to be salt and light. And what do these things do? Well, light banishes the darkness and salt stops the rot. As Christians, part of our role is to stand against the works of Satan. So we're called to stand and pray against sickness, against injustice, and so on. When Peter was in prison, the church prayed for him to be released. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that if possible, the cup would pass from him. But here's the thing. Even as we pray for deliverance for ourselves or for others, we must also recognize and submit to God's sovereignty. Sometimes God will allow us to go through the trials. He hasn't promised that he will always deliver us, just that he will always be with us. But unless God explicitly tells you that he's going to allow a specific trial to continue, then I believe you carry on praying for deliverance. And lastly, if God is using trials and sufferings for good, does this make them easier to bear? Well, yes and no, I think, to this one. At one level, the answer has to be no, because if the trial became easy, it would cease to be a trial. But God's word has been given to encourage us, and I do firmly believe that the more we understand and hold on to the truth that God has revealed to us, the more firmly we will be able to stand. And yes, even to rejoice, even though for a little while we might have to endure various trials of, of various kinds. So as you experience times of trial, try to remember the bigger picture. You are loved and chosen by God from the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world. And there's nothing that can separate you from that love. Your security is absolute. And though your suffering may seem to be going on and on, one day you will be able to look back and see that it really was just temporary, a momentary affliction in the light of eternity. And finally, try to remember that God is allowing you to go through this trial for a reason. He's using it to prepare you for a future which is beyond your wildest imagining, a future in which you will be so perfect, so amazing, so beautiful, so precious, that you will be the cause of praise and glory and honor rising to our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again.